Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. My name is Federico Ast, I am president at the Cooperative Cleros, and today we have someone I greatly admire, Glenn Weil. Glenn was born in San Francisco and did a PhD in economics at Princeton. He is founder of the Radical Exchange Foundation, founder and research lead at the Decentralized Social Technology Collaboratory at Microsoft and chair at the Plurality Institute, an initiative we very proudly are sponsoring from Cleros. He is also author of the great book Radical Market, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society with his co-author Eric Posner. And in this episode, we discussed all things on institutional crypto economics, decentralized society, quadratic voting, soulbound tokens, and even Civilization VI. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Decentralized Justice Broadcast. My name is Federico Ast, I am president at Cooperative Cleros. And today we have someone I greatly admire, Glenn Wild. So Glenn was born in San Francisco. He did a PhD in economics at Princeton, and he's founder of Radical Exchange Foundation, founder and research lead of Decentralized Social Technology Collaboratory at Microsoft, and chair at the Plurality Institute, an initiative we very proudly sponsor from, from Cleros. So, and he is also author of the great book, Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society with his co-author, Eric Posner. Thank you very much, Glenn, for being in our podcast. Federico, it's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, thanks for the very generous introduction. Awesome. Well, let's get started. You know, I was doing research on your background, and I found out something quite interesting. You, very young, you won a prize, a Douglas North Prize. <laughs> it looks like almost a prediction of what would be your, your whole career in the future. <laughs> I don't even know how you found that. 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 that was from high school. It's a Wikipedia. That was amazing. I yeah. mean, high school already winning a Douglas North Prize. I mean, that was that's amazing. <laughs> well, Tell me about right. that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that was a long time ago. You know, I was interested in economics at a very young age. I was interested in economics um, when I was about 12 years old. And actually, my proudest thing from that time is that I wrote a letter to Milton Friedman, a fan letter. And he wrote back saying, you say that you're 12. I assume you meant 22. Please respond. Uh, and I invited him to have coffee with me because I lived near him at the time and never got a follow up. So I never got to meet one of my heroes. but. Um, but I, I do have a letter from him, so. That's that's awesome. I mean, I'm a, a big fan of Free to Choose, the book he wrote with Rose. And, uh, and tell, I mean, tell me a bit uh, so about the, the early times, I mean, um, your career. So you, you won this, Douglas, I mean, what, what was it about? You presented an essay about institutional economics. What what was it about? Um, I, uh, my, I had a life of contradictions. Uh, I campaigned for Bill Clinton and ended up on TV uh, when I, at the age of six. And then I became a socialist campaigner with multicolored hair. And then I read Ayn Rand and a ton of economics mm. and ended up becoming head of the National Teenage Republican Organization. Uh, and then uh, I left all that ideological politics behind, became like, a, I joined the, I was on the national physics team and I be, you know, did all this economics stuff. I competed in a lot of economics competitions, did my PhD in economics, uh, and then became disillusioned with economics and ended up in the Web3 world. So I've gone through a lot of different sort of opposite and contradictory 
things. And I, I find that it's the intersection of those contradictions that often helps you make progress and see problems in different ways. Um, so that's amazing. I mean, and, and um, I'm, I'm curious to know about what was the, the I mean, reason of your disillusionment with, with traditional economics. I'm an economist myself, and I maybe had this same disillusionment. I mean, can you tell me a bit about that? So um, when I was working on my PhD, uh, I wrote three essays. One uh, was arguing that we should apply uh you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning type stuff to econometrics. One was arguing that um, financial arbitrage and new derivatives in the financial markets would actually increase risk rather than reduce it. And then the third was uh, like a very conventional analysis of antitrust issues. And uh, the first two, the profession totally hated. Uh, and the third one um, ended up influencing in a pretty significant way the antitrust guidelines written by the Obama administration uh, in 2010. And so I got lots of praise for the last one and lots of you know lack of interest in the first two. And I had been sort of a star student. I was used to following sort of the gradient of like what I was supposed to be doing and what got praise. And so I, I went with that direction. Um, and the first two ended up becoming incredibly influential things in economics, even though nobody knows that I did them. Like AI applied to uh, econometrics is like one of the hottest areas of all of economics. Uh, this, you know, pretty much everyone agrees that the in the lead up to the financial crash in 2008, derivatives and arbitrage mm -hmm. things worse. Um, and the third one. Uh, I've ended up feeling embarrassed about. Like, I think it just reinforced the existing antitrust regime, which was totally corrupt um, and just has been discredited since. So I decided after that point that if I, you know, had another idea that I thought was really important, but the profession didn't get, I just, I wasn't going to listen. And so when I mm -hmm. came up with the quadratic voting stuff and the stuff that led to radical markets, when the profession just wasn't interested, I just went a different direction. Um, and I've made a lot of impact with those things by ignoring uh, the fact that it didn't fit with mainstream economics. What was the, the motivation for your research on quadratic voting? I mean, what were you thinking at the, at the moment? Uh, what, yeah. Well, it was. Uh, it's interesting. So I I um, spent a summer in the favelas in Rio de Janeiro. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, one thing that I noticed there is that, you know, there's all these people living on this gorgeous land, uh, but who are very poor. Hmm. And then there's, uh, a big lack of housing in the city. And so it just seemed like there was some real, something messed up. There was like a misallocation of resources, you know? Um, and, you know, in Rio, there's all the, the most beautiful views and hills in the world are covered with these shanty towns. Um, and so the question is like, you know, is, is there a way to deal with that, to re realign that land? So I started thinking about this question about um, like forced sales of land or eminent domain, but ways that you can make it so that the people participating would consent in some collective way to it. So I started looking into mechanisms in economics for that kind of thing. And um, they're very complicated, the ones that have been proposed and not very practical. But I started doing simulations on them and I found mm. 
consistently that the actual suggestion that they were giving was that the payments should be quadratic in something. And I realized that that principle was much more universal, much more robust than was the payment rules that were more fragile that the mechanisms were using. And so I ended up finding quadratic voting that way. I've, I've since come to understand that it has a lot more different foundations than that, but that was the that was my path into it, just like exploring a technical question. Okay, so now I know where the first chapter of regular markets come from. I mean, for that from yeah. that experience in, in Rio, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the second chapter in radical markets, uh, you know, the one about land is, is also related to that experience. So that experience was very formative on me. It also really shaped my wife's uh, career trajectory. She became a Latin American political scientist. So, oh, I mean, I am from Buenos Aires myself, so I can I like understand all of all of this. Um, uh, you know, I just started thinking, you know, have you read Hernando de Soto, The Mystery of Capital? Of I'm sure course, yeah. My <laughs> wife is one of the world experts on those topics, and uh, I have a lot to say about it and have thought about it for many years, and she has even more to say about it, I guess. So. Okay. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm in the end about how institutions can form capital or not. Uh, I mean, I, I live this my whole life. So um, how did you get involved, I mean, to blockchain? What was the motivation there? Well, I, I I was very anti-blockchain stuff um, until about uh, late 2017, early 2018, when uh, my book was about to come out. And uh, Vitalik Buterin, I think via Zuko Wilcox, saw my paper about property as monopoly. And he tweeted about it. And I got more traffic on Twitter from that one you know tweet than I got from the whole rest <laughs> of my career on Twitter before. So I said, who is this person? I had never heard of him. Mm. And he looked, um, he was like, you know, a 24-year-old billionaire uh, Russian-Canadian guy. And I said, this sounds like some kind of a Bond villain. Um, and, but, you know, I thought maybe I'll send him my manuscript. And I sent it to him for the book. And he sent me back like 20 pages of the most thoughtful comments I'd ever gotten from anyone on anything. And uh, so at that point, I thought, well, maybe there's something more here than meets the eye. And so I started to correspond with him and he invited me to talk at some, uh, you know, Ethereum conferences. And we've ended up becoming very close collaborators in the time since. Into the world, you know. And what, what is your, I mean, how do you apply, I mean, your previous work and your current work, you know, on the um, institutional economics into, well, blockchain. I mean, I guess we are building new institutions, right? And we wouldn't want to make it right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that there are uh, a few things. One is that um, the sort of limits of what you can do in a very formalistic environment like blockchain force you to examine the limits of various assumptions you have about how institutions work. Like you pretty quickly realize that very simplistic capitalist ideas just don't work. They like lead to all kinds of bad uh, outcomes. And so it forces people to look at these questions and to experiment with different types of rules for social decision-making that can both be formal, but also not lead to sort of plutocratic outcomes. And so there's just been a lot of engagement from the Web3 space in experimenting mm. uh, with these things. Um, you know, there's also a lot of really interesting issues around what the actual 
role and function of blockchains are, in my mind, they're a tool for creating what I would call common knowledge, uh, which is a, a situation where everybody knows that everybody knows that everybody knows something. And that's a very core part of what coordination and legitimacy are about, which are important when, when you're trying to build institutions. But you know, more than anything, I view the Web3 space as just a really exciting place to experiment with different social arrangements um, and learn about them. How do you see this? I mean, some people believe there is like a um, contradiction between um, or attention between, you know, this idea of uh, having people vote with the tokens in DAOs and the idea of legitimacy where some of our ideas come from, I mean, having one person, one vote, right? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think uh, voting with tokens in DAOs is is a bad, like a pretty bad design um, because you can get 51% of tokens and you can expropriate 100% of assets potentially. And so there's a strong incentive to perform that kind of that kind of looting attack on anything that has, you know, meaningful assets. Um, it's a little bit different on a cryptocurrency because even if you could do a 51% attack on a cryptocurrency, all you could do is take that currency, which would probably lose its value. But the DAO could potentially hold assets that are external to the DAO, right? And so to the extent it does, like there's a strong incentive to do that kind of an attack. So I, I think, you know, and that's true of any corporate governance. The thing is just there are rules in corporate governance that stop you from doing that kind of looting. There's there's laws and there's no laws within the Web3 space. So I think, um, you know, coin voting just doesn't make a lot of sense. But um, uh, there are a lot of really interesting approaches once you start having some notion of personhood. Um, you can do quadratic voting type things. And, and eventually you want things, I think, that are even richer than that. You want things linked to some kind of an identity that's beyond just you're an individual separate person, but that actually represents, you know, what are your social connections? What are your, um, wh what groups are you part of? What da other DAOs are you part of? What protocols you work on, et cetera. Okay, and that brings me perfectly to the centralized society paper you, you co-author with Puja Olaver and, and Vitalik. Um, please tell us a bit about what you were thinking when you started writing, I mean, publishing this, this paper. What were you targeting? Well, the, the origin of this paper actually comes from another paper, another blog post I wrote called Intersectional Social Data, which gives a vision of you know basically replacing money and replacing uh, a lot of social institutions with some sort of networked trust. And that I think is a very exciting vision, but it's one that's very hard to get a way into. And what I started to realize um, was that a lot of the stuff could be done with Web3 primitives if you use this idea that Vitalik had proposed in January of non-transferable tokens, soulbound tokens. And uh, so the paper tried to illustrate sort of an approach to get towards a lot of these very ambitious ideas that we'd had using these non-transferable tokens. Um, I started working that out with Pooja, as well as there's this guy, Leon Erickson, who I talked to quite a bit. He's he's part of Gitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, and Vitalik was very interested, and so we ended up working on this paper together. Um, what What problems... 
can this approach of SBT solve that cannot be solved by previous approaches? You mean within Web3 contexts? Yeah. 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 So um, I think the fundamental limitation of Web3 present is that um, everything is sort of a synonymous bank account holding fully transferable assets. And so everything is just some sort of a financial operation. But, you know, even in finance, the value of things that is traded is not financial. It's socially created and then financialized. Mm. And so Web3 is sort of incapable of actually creating or representing value. It can only exchange the value that already exists. So if you think about like stocks, those trade companies share like you know, the most of the value of Google set of people that are there and how they're connected to each other and the culture they have among them. And none of those things can be represented by a transferable asset because it they're properties of people and how people connect to each other. So I think SBTs by being non-transferable and by representing social connections have the potential to actually create the underlying value that Web3 then can trade. They can create uh, non-transferable lending. They can create commitments to not replicate a given work of art, um, which then underlies the reason why it's a, a, the NFT that represents that art could have value in the first place, et cetera. Okay, I mean, um, that's something really exciting, especially for me, who I, mean, I come from emerging economics. And uh, one of the frustrations that we have is that, you know, you have all of these lending apps uh, or protocols, but, you know, you have to put more collateral than, I mean, what you will uh, get from, I mean, the lending protocol, right? So it's kind of a bit frustrating yes. for someone that needs, you know, for real life kind of situations. Yeah, so this, this could be solved by, by an SBT. Maybe give us an example of how you imagine this to work. Yeah, so um, a simple example like this would be, uh, suppose that you have the contents of what would be your LinkedIn profile or your um, or your CV represented by a series of SBTs that you have that are cryptographically signed by the counterparty that issued you that credential. So like, for example, if you publish a paper in a journal, that journal issues you a credential um, that's an SBT in your wallet. If you um, graduate from university, they issue a credential as an SBT. So you've got all these things. Now you're an artist and you want to create a work of art and you, you want it to be a limited edition and you want to say, look, I'm not going to make basically the same work of art again. I'm going to issue, make three of these and I'm going to issue them as NFTs. So then I would mint the NFTs as usual, sell them to whoever I sell them to and link them to an SBT in my profile, which says the following three linked NFTs are the only three copies of the work here described and uh, any other is fake and I will not make another one again. So if I try to do that ever again in the future, it would be in my wallet that I had made this commitment and then violated it. And so that would undermine my reputation. That's a way of my staking my reputation. And of course you could do the same thing for lending. When I get lent money from someone, I could put into my profile something that they have, but not I have the ability to revoke that says I owe a loan to this person. It might or might not mention the amount. And then, you know, after it was paid off, that person would remove that loan. Yeah, it's, I'm excited about all of the new use cases this, is, this will enable. 
There is one very, I mean, in my opinion, fascinating quote from the Nisog paper that says uh, that markets and politics are not separate design spaces. And could you explain what you, you meant by that? Yeah. So um, markets generate firms with power, usually. They have power over their participants because usually there's some kind of increasing returns, network effect, where they get uh, strong and people don't have equally good alternatives to exit to. Um, and so to the extent that they have that power, you want that power to be in some way democratically governed. Um, and that becomes politics. So then there becomes questions of bargaining, you know, over what that firm does, uh, maybe voting, et cetera, right? Conversely, um, a lot of political questions have elements of scarcity involved in them. You might publicly build a road, you might publicly build health facilities, but there will be questions of rationing, uh, access to that road, congestion, um, access to scarce medicines. And you want to bring in some element of markets to ration those resources, though not necessarily like turn it over to a completely private system. So in fact, I think almost every uh, aspect of the world involves a mixture and intermingling of political and market logics, rather than like them being two separate spheres that operate according to different principles. And once you take that seriously, I think it kind of completely rewrites almost everything that we say about either sort of economic ideas or, uh, mm. you know, political philosophy. Um, well, if, if we succeed in building all of these tools we are building, um, what do you imagine the world will look like, I mean, in 10 or 20 years? What's the long-term vision for you? Um, so I imagine a world where rather than the primary like thing that we think of as being in power are companies and uh, governments. Instead, everyone is participating in many different democratic communities that each govern different slices of the world that they interact with. And they share at least a few of these communities with most of, you know, with someone with pretty much anyone on the planet, they'll share at least a few of these communities, but there will be many that are not shared with any given person. So every person will sort of have a, a collection of different groups that they're a part of, that they're participating in, in a, some kind of democratic way, um, and that together sort of constitute the government for them. And they're partially sharing that with other people, both physically near them and physically distant from them, but not fully sharing it with anyone else. And so everyone is sort of an individual defined by these communities that they're participating in. And there's all kinds of cool ways to participate in these communities. You can do it through kind of a Twitter-like medium, but one that's much better engineered to um, find consensus across social differences. and. Um, People, when they start a new project with someone, it's supported by the communities that they're a part of that might benefit from that project, not as an investment. And then they 
charge something for it, though there may be an element of that, but rather as a public good that's brought to the different communities that they're a part of, um, that if many of them together, you know, value it, maybe some broader thing that has all of those underneath will support so to get those communities cooperating on this new good. So we would have a completely different type of an economic system, a completely different political system, a totally different substrate for participating in our lives um, based on this sort of intersectional network that connects us. Um, so um, you have um, this new initiative called the Plurality Institute. Why don't you tell a bit the, the audience what this is uh, about and yeah, um, what's the vision? So there's two standard visions that we hear a lot about for the future of technology. One is AI, where like a giant computer replaces people and everybody just has a universal basic income. Um, another one is, um, you know, the crypto vision where like we knock down social institutions and replace them with, you know, automated protocols and everything is run in a total like capitalist market way. And I think neither of these is very appealing. Uh, and I think that a, a better vision is one where we radically harness technology to enable much more powerful and richer cooperation across people um, and across institutions. And that is the vision that we call plurality. And it's already instantiated to a large extent in the digital ecosystem in Taiwan developed by their digital minister, Audrey Tong. And we want this to be just as recognizable of a field of technology and, uh, you know, academic research as the other two. And the Plurality Institute is our attempt to begin coordinating that uh, research by bringing together academics across all sorts of fields with people who are deploying technologies like this in a variety of practical settings. And how can people from the audience who might be interested in this to start collaborating or getting in touch to with Plurality Institute? Yeah, how so can Plurality Institute is is primarily academic, but if you have good applications, uh, you can always reach out to me at Glenn at plurality.institute. Um, and uh, you can check out the website at plurality.institute. But we're also writing a book that's for a broader audience that's going to be a public uh, collaboration based on Git. Uh, between Audrey and myself and a community of hundreds of people around the world. Um, so you can check that out. You can write to me at glenn at plurality.net or you can um, uh, check out uh, at plurality book uh, and uh, we're going to have our GitHub repo up soon. Awesome. And well, one last question. Um, so yeah. what what type of, I mean, what readings, what books, movies, or whatever you can you recommend to people who want to start, I mean, getting involved in this type of research, you know, social economics and everything that you work on? Well, intellectually, some of my favorite books are John Dewey's The Public and Its Problems from 1927. Georg Zimmel's Sociology is another real classic. Um, the Decentralized Society paper is a good entry point. Uh, the Radical Exchange blog has a lot of material. Uh, Star Trek is a big inspiration for me and Audrey, so I'm always a big fan of that. Um, and uh, the game Civilization VI, the latest version of it, The Gathering Storm, has a bunch of these ideas actually built into the mechanics of the game, including quadratic voting. So 
That's a fun way to. I mean, I play. I played that game. I mean, please explain a bit more about that. I'm curious yeah, about have you that. played the Gathering Storm ex- expansion pack for Civilization Six? I play Civilization, but not that one. That expansion pack. Yeah, so but, but the, the latest the, one. The diplomatic voting uses quadratic voting, and the future governments all are related to the ideologies that I just described to you. Well, I'm definitely going to download that that pack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, um, Glenn, uh, thank you very much uh, for for being here with us and uh, for sharing everything that you are working on. Um, so uh, this is. And hopefully, uh, I'll see you in Berkeley next month, Federico. Uh, right? Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. I mean. Um, and uh, so, thank you very much. And this was another yeah. episode of the okay. Justice Broadcast. Thank you, Glenn Wild, and see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Glenn Wild and that you learned as much as I did about how we can transform institutions for a more prosperous economy and a more just society. Remember to follow Cleros on Twitter so you can learn when new episodes of the podcast are out. Take care and see you next time. Bye-bye.